U.S. President-elect Donald Trump claims to have an open mind on climate science, but he put an unabashed climate science denier in charge of his environmental transition team, and he says he'll slash NASA's climate monitoring capabilities. At the recent Marrakesh climate talks, diplomats found hope in Trump's apparent lack of ideological conviction. President-elect Trump is a, a pragmatist. He's not a fundamentalist. I don't think he is against green or against sustainable as a matter of principle. That's Ivo de Boer, who oversaw the climate talks for four years as head of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. He'll probably want to understand the business proposition better, and he'll probably want to understand better um, how acting on green, how acting on climate can contribute to uh, America's future. But what is the business proposition? What does meeting the climate challenge mean for America's future? Might a president who doesn't believe in climate science still find it worthwhile to stay in the Paris Agreement? And who will pick up the slack if he doesn't? Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know its ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature itself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we look back on the Marrakesh Climate Talks, which wrapped up last Friday after two weird weeks that began with the election of Donald Trump and continued as if the election hadn't even happened. As early as November 9th, the day after the election, a consensus emerged that the Paris Agreement would continue with or without the United States, and that individual U.S. states, NGOs, and even businesses would step up to fill any leadership gap at the federal level. On today's show, which I'm calling Voices from Marrakesh, you'll get an auditory mosaic of snippets from interviews I conducted in Marrakesh in the days after the U.S. election. The, the starting point is this, this election was not about uh, climate and energy. It was about something rather different. That's Andrew Steer, who runs the World Resources Institute, or WRI, which is a global environmental research group that keeps an eye on the economic role of forests, farms, fields, and rivers. Uh, the evidence is that Americans actually uh, want action on climate, and they also want clean energy. He's speaking just days after Donald Trump won the U.S. presidential election on November 8th, as is everyone you'll hear today. I conducted most of the interviews live, but I recorded Steer and the other WRI folks during a media call that they hosted. There is nonetheless a belief uh, that the incoming administration uh, seems to have that there is a trade-off between environmental management and, and economic growth. 
um, and in particular climate action and economic uh, development. Um, the evidence is, is overwhelming that this is uh, not the case. A US president or any political upset you know, could not have stopped the transition from the steam locomotive um, to the automobile or from the typewriter to the personal computer um, or from you know, traditional codec-style cameras to digital photography. That's Anthony Hobley, who runs the Carbon Tracker Initiative, which helps investors put a price on climate risk in general and fossil fuel risk in particular. And he will not be able to stop this low-carbon transition because actually it makes economic sense. Carbon Tracker made huge waves a few years back when they published research arguing that coal and oil reserves are essentially stranded assets that might never be harvested and sold in a carbon-constrained world and will probably be written off as losses. Long-term investors like pension funds dumped shares as a result, and oil stocks plunged. So the Financial Stability Board called in this guy. Companies today recognize that um, they have liabilities. Former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg. You look at General Electric uh, being required to clean up the entire Hudson River. Nobody ever thought that those they let down the road 20 years later have an enormous uh, hit to their income statement balance sheet. He's speaking at last year's climate talks, the ones in Paris, when he agreed to run a new task force on climate-related financial disclosures. The marketplace does try to price in uh, the risks that companies run from environmental issues, not perfectly, and one of the things that would benefit everybody is if you had comparable statistics that were easily accessible so that the marketplace can make its decisions. Uh, we always have a saying at Bloomberg, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So, increased transparency around climate risks and increased demand for clean energy leads to... Huge economic and financial opportunities from investing in these technologies. And the costs and the scale of these technologies are going in one, you know, going in one direction. The costs are coming down, they are scaling up, whereas the costs of using fossil fuels, finding them, extracting them, delivering them to market, are going in one direction up. Even some traditional red states, you know, you see a, a massive rollout of renewable energy in places like Texas, not because they suddenly woke up and they were tree huggers. Christian Devale runs Elthelia Ecosphere, which invests in sustainable agriculture programs. I come from Texas. I know what I know what it's like. It's because it made good business sense. And those, you know, forces that, you know, not only the companies themselves but the, you know, the mayors and the governors and the and the and the state legislators are go are going to want to support their constituents. A lot of American cities have been extremely active on sustainability on climate change and they will continue to do that. That's Ivo de Boer again. You heard him at the beginning. He was executive secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change from 2006 through mid-2010. After leaving the UNFCCC, he became KPMG's special global advisor for climate change and sustainability. Now he runs his own consultancy in the Netherlands. A lot of states have been very active on climate action on renewables and they will continue um, to do that. And I think a number of policies are in place at the federal level, including the, the, the green energy tax credits, which I expect to be continue to be in place. Roughly 75% of global emissions are from cities. That's Alden Meyer, Director of Strategy and Policy for the Union of Concerned Scientists. If he sounds winded, 
It's because I caught him between meetings and we're walking as we talk. That's where most of the emissions are because they're where most of the people live. It reminds me of uh, how U.S. cities responded to the uh, Kyoto uh, Agreement and its uh, failure to be approved by the U.S. Congress. Sam Adams was mayor of Portland, Oregon, before becoming head of WRI's operations in the United States. In response to that, in the following couple of years, over 5,000 U.S. cities signed up and committed themselves to the, uh, the goals and objectives of the uh, Kyoto Protocol. And, as if on cue, Michael Bloomberg gave a speech last week at a meeting of the Global Covenant of Mayors, which he chairs. I don't have a recording, but he adapted his speech into an op-ed called Washington Won't Have Last Word on Climate Change, which you can find online. Among other things, he said, quote, If the Trump administration does withdraw from the Paris Accord, I will recommend that the 128 U.S. mayors who are part of the Global Covenant of Mayors seek to join in its place. Now, technically, I'm not sure that's possible within the United Nations, because it's not the United Cities, after all, and the U.N. is leery of getting mixed up in subnational issues that could be seen to be divisive. But non-state actors are becoming more and more important in the fight to slow climate change. The state of California, for example, has entered into several agreements with states in other countries. So, cities across the United States stepped up after George W. Bush bailed out of the Kyoto Protocol, and U.S. emissions did drop despite the country's withdrawal. Today, 29 states have renewable energy standards, and California is aiming to get 50% of its energy from renewables by 2030 as part of its effort to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions 40% across the entire economy, not just the energy sector. But what about the private sector? Acting on its own? We'll pick up that thread after this. You're listening to Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or whichever service you use to access us. And give us a good, honest review. Because the better reviews we get, the more ears we get. And the more ears we get, the more understanding we can spread. If enough people listen, we might even get some funding, which would make it possible for me to do this right, with real production values and a whole team of reporters. If you want to offer feedback, or even better, advertise on Bionic Planet, reach out to me directly at steve at bionic-planet.com. Once again, that's steve at bionic-planet.com. You can also help us financially by clicking on the support button at bionic-planet.com, which for now redirects to the Anthropocene website. The address again, bionic-planet.com. There has been a lot of growing awareness within the American corporate landscape as to the importance of climate change. And the fact that there's a new president who's not going to hammer them isn't going to change their commitment. That's Mike Korczynski, who you may have heard in Episode 9. He runs Wildlife Works, which develops and manages private conservation projects around the world. He's referring in part to pledges that hundreds of companies have made to slash their greenhouse gas emissions, often by reducing their impact on forests. To learn more about that, 
check out a 2014 Forest Trends report called Consumer Goods and Deforestation, which you can find online. It showed that about 15% of all greenhouse gas emissions come from deforestation, and that most deforestation comes from people chopping trees to feed our own ravenous appetites for four commodities, palm oil, soy, beef, and pulp and paper. That led to initiatives like the New York Declaration on Forests, where roughly 200 companies have pledged to end deforestation in the next decade. We've covered that on Ecosystem Marketplace since its inception in 2014, and we started covering it on Bionic Planet in Episode 7, which is the first in a multi-part series on Kenya's agroforestry revolution. Most of that commitment has been um, rational and, uh, and, and not ideological. Benign self-interest has always been an alluring concept. Some would call it a siren song. Because, like the sirens of ancient Greece whose enchanting voices lured sailors to deadly rocks, the belief that companies would act in ways that are rational and benign has beguiled many an economist. Remember this guy? I made a mistake in presuming that the self-interest of organizations, specifically banks and others, were such as that they were best capable of protecting their own shareholders and their equity in the firms. That's former Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan testifying before Congress in 2008 after the real estate bubble burst. The problem here is something which looked to be a very solid edifice and indeed a critical pillar to market competition and free markets did break down and I think that, as I said, shocked me. I still do not fully understand why it happened People ripped him apart for that. But I give him credit for being willing to question premises that he's relied on and reiterated and become attached to. And obviously, to the extent that I figure out where it happened and why, uh, I will change my views. I mean, if the facts change, I will change. As facts change, he changes, as he should, and as we all should. But one fact that has never changed is that the private sector must be engaged in the climate fight if we're to win it. The question is whether companies are brought in by hook or by crook, by carrot or by stick. Are they dragged in, lured in, or do they lead? The answer is, usually, a little bit of all three. And the solution is best summed up as trust but verify. And one tool for verifying is the Forest Trends Supply Change Project, which keeps track of the progress that companies are reporting on their pledges to reduce deforestation. You'll find it at supply-change.org, and you can learn how to use it by checking out Episode 7 of Bionic Planet or reading a piece on Ecosystem Marketplace called To See or Not to See, Transparency and the Climate Conundrum. For now, all you really need to know is this. When it comes to ending deforestation, a handful of companies like Unilever and Mars and Kellogg's and Marks and & Spencer have taken pains to restructure their supply chains. Other companies are following their lead, but others are just paying lip service. Investors' mindsets have enormously changed over the last five years. Andrew Mitchell runs the Global Canopy Program. 
which, like Forest Trends and WRI and the Environmental Defense Fund and others, has spent more than a decade bringing green-minded executives and investors into the fold. In Rio in 2012, we launched the Natural Capital Declaration for the finance sector. That's now called the Natural Capital Finance Alliance, and I'm the co-director of it with UNEPFI. Now, in that, lots of financial institutions, including huge institutions like Citi in the U.S., are signing up to the idea that they have to take account of natural capital in their future investments and lending. What do we mean by natural capital? Well, clean air is natural capital, and you screw that up if you pollute it. Uh, uh, soils and vegetation, forests, those sort of things are natural capital. Clean water is natural capital. These kinds of things are impacted by investment decisions. They're now realizing that they've got to get across all that. So this is changing the mindset of investors. So to suggest to them that polluting the atmosphere is a good investment decision is simply not going to fly. As much as Donald may want it, he's going to find that a really tough call. And I'm working with organizations like the Principles for Responsible Investment, which uh, has almost half Half the world's invested capital now signed up to those principles. Series in the United States, a really good network working with financial institutions way back since the Exxon Valdez disaster, the whole game has changed. So I think his message will look old-fashioned, and he's a businessman, and he'll listen to what business says. While some may want to go back to the past, there's a big different future, and he's going to have to wake up and learn that. That's the good news. And a few years back, Global Canopy created the Forest 500 a list of the 500 entities that can end deforestation if they choose to do so, and then rank them based on their commitments. Forest Trends then followed up on those pledges through the Supply Change Project and found that companies that publish results are, on average, 72% of the way towards delivering on their pledges. Unfortunately, information is only available on 48% of those pledges, less than half. And that scares the hell out of investors like this guy. Uh, we're not an impact investor. We're not a social investor as much as I would like to say we are. We are a crass, long-term investor for a million people. Peter Granis oversees pensions for more than one million current and former employees of New York State. And we have to make decisions. We have to be right. Uh, we can't take risks. And so we focus on the risk side, and we are hoping the opportunities will present themselves to us. Two days ago, a group of 19 investors who, between them, are representing over $5.5 trillion, um, have issued a call for an immediate and unlimited moratorium on Arctic high sea activity. Nigel Topping runs the We Mean Business Coalition, comprised of 490 companies with more than $8 trillion in revenue and 183 investors controlling more than $20 trillion in assets. Unfortunately, the sound quality isn't all that great, because I didn't record him in person. He was on the media call that WRI arranged. Because they see that as a risk of wasting their pension fund members, their ordinary working teachers, firemen, factory workers, members, um, hard-earned and preciously invested money. So it's, it's not just a policy issue, it's also a, um, an ordinary working person's pension fund security issue, which investors are starting to really worry about. There's no question that, over the last five years, private companies have spoken up against climate change like never before, often with calls for clear, transparent regulation, in part to avoid risk, but also to maximize returns. Even some fossil fuel companies have joined the chorus, and let's not forget that low-carbon natural gas is also a fossil fuel. Well, the constituents 
and the private sector operate according to market imperatives. And the situation in many parts of the world is that renewables are already cheaper than coal and fossil fuel technology. Because of the huge advances that we've seen in renewable energy technology uh, and because of the costs that have come down as a result. So the marketplace is shifting almost irrespective of the politics. And that shift, I think, will, is, is already influencing um, the oil industry, the coal industry as well. You see the oil industry looking more and more at gas and, and diversification. You see the coal industry looking at uh, extremely efficient uh, coal technology, at carbon capture and storage. All of that is not going to save the planet, but it's, it's a move in, in the right direction. In the U.S., utility-scale solar costs have fallen by almost 65 percent since 2008. Jonathan Pershing is the U.S. Special Envoy for Climate Change. We're installing, for economic reasons, not policies that favor one source over another, but economically driven programs. Mike Korczynski sees three ways that a Trump presidency could play out. So I think that there's one scenario that says the action goes to the private sector in the U.S., not everywhere else, of course. We're just talking about the rest of the U.S. Another scenario is it goes to the states, as you pointed out. And then the third scenario is it, it gets clobbered uh, and, uh, and discouraged, in which case all the innovation that is happening in the U.S. in climate will, will find a place to employ itself elsewhere. We're seeing a determination from major economies like China to push forward with this, this clean energy revolution. Climate finance and impact investing did not, start, did not start the day that Barack Obama took office uh, in 2008. It preceded it by quite a long shot. And um, I think that, as Anthony rightly says, um, a, uh, the wrong policy signal, a wrong leadership signal, or the absence of leadership um, from a capital as important as Washington, D.C., of course it's going to have an impact in terms of the, the timing and perhaps the, um, the, the, the velocity um, the, uh, around which you know, things continue to develop. But uh, China has put a ship in motion that is not turning around, and, it's, it's, and, and, they're, and they are investing in environmental security for national security reasons. They're not going to put their future on the line. Uh, knowing full well the physical realities associated with climate change just because um, American or, or British voters have made, shall we say, um, an unusual or um, curious decision um, about how they elect and how they, how they govern themselves. If 10 years ago you had made a list of the top 10 um, renewable energy or, or sustainability-related technology providers worldwide, probably six out of the ten would have been American companies. If you make the same list today, maybe one or two are part of the top ten. So if you want to make America great again, then put it back into the top ten, including in the area which is clearly about the future and about putting our, our prosperity, not just our planet, not just our people, but our prosperity on a, on a much more positive path. So, the broader U.S. economy has a lot to lose if the Trump administration backslides on climate change, but will the administration pay attention to the broader economy, or will it cuddle up with a few old-school fossil fuel companies? Only time will tell. 
But there are still two more interrelated elements to this mosaic, national security and international relations. We know that climate change is, is contributing to instability all over the world, to include Arab Spring and the Syrian conflict. Uh, we know that climate change is contributing to all kinds of instability all over the world, and it's, and, it's make, and it's getting worse. It's getting much worse. That's retired Brigadier General Stephen Cheney, formerly of the United States Marine Corps, now head of the American Security Project. Our own bases and stations here in the United States and several overseas are literally going underwater. The Naval Air Station Norfolk is about a meter above water level. We know the piers at the Naval Station there are going underwater. Uh, we have a big station in Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean. That's going underwater. So from the military perspective, the senior military folks understand the impact of climate change. And it's not just in the United States. Over 70% of the countries in the world have written climate change into the national security strategy. So uh, just about everybody's on board with this. We just have to make sure we can convince the Trump administration. If Mr. Trump does decide to pull out of this process, he's going to find himself very isolated on the world stage, and it may have implications for other issues. He cares about getting cooperation from world leaders like terrorism, trade, military cooperation. Uh, he's going to learn quite quickly that climate change is now a geopolitical issue of the top order. And uh, he can't be perceived as pulling the U.S. out and not doing our fair share of the lift without suffering some serious blowback to other parts of his agenda. It is, in effect, a bit of a trade agreement, right? Peter Graham is a former Canadian negotiator, now working as a consultant in Washington, D.C. It affects trade of goods and the value of, of, of goods and trade. Um, and in that sense, if you follow some of the statements or speeches um, of, the, of Trump and his administration, his new administration, as it will be, they were saying that they could make better deals than previously. So to me, that's a sign that maybe they'll give a go at trying to stay in to make it work better from their point of view uh, for the American people. Um, so I'm again, back to, yeah, I would hesitate assuming that pulling out is going to be the first step. Maybe it is. It's hard to say. But they may see reason and say, okay, look, you know, we can do good for ourselves um, by staying in. I remember at the beginning of the, of the, of the Bush administration, Condoleezza Rice uh, calling European ambassadors in Washington, D.C. into our office and saying, Kyoto is dead. We are walking away from that. And that created a lot of bad feelings and poor sentiment in many areas way beyond the climate change domain. So this is not just about um, a new president's position on climate change. It's about, about global relationships. That I think he will take into account. There seem to be two obvious wild cards in all of this. One is Donald Trump's own mind, and the other is the private sector's degree of commitment, which is really hard to pin down because the private sector isn't a monolithic entity. But there are two other wild cards as well. Will Trump even last long enough to implement his policies? And what can legally be done to prevent him from gunking things up? For the first time in over 150 years, People are calling on the Electoral College to pick a different candidate, and I have no idea whether that can work or not. 
But like Michael Bloomberg's call for U.S. cities to join the Paris Agreement, it shows you the crazy state we're in. As for the legal options... The question is, has uh, Donald trumped climate change? Uh, that's one of the questions everybody's around here in Morocco is what everybody's on, on everyone's lips. And I guess if you look at, could he tear up the agreement? That's the first question, the climate agreement. Well, uh, for him to do that, it would take at least three years before there could be any exit and probably a year after that as well. So it's probably four years, even if he pressed go. Uh, could he get out of the convention on the UNFCC convention? Could he get out of that? Yes, he could get out of that pretty quick. Uh, you could actually repeal the convention more quickly than, you, in a sense, he could tear up. Uh, the other thing that's more likely is he could sort of go slow on all the sort of green, uh, <coughs> the green requirements that are necessary to maintain the climate change uh, agreement in Paris. Uh, so. Um, there's other things uh, in play here, of course, uh, and that is the fact that a lot of these agreements were made under executive orders uh, by the president, by Obama, and it's much easier for another president to come in and simply tear those up. It's not as though they went through Congress. But one thing is rock solid, and that is the agreement made by Nixon way back when they created the EPA and they created the climate agreement then. Uh, that agreement is in law, and in that CO2 is, uh, uh, is perfectly well defined there, and it'll be very hard to roll back. And if he roll, starts to roll back on that, then there could be a lot of legal cases brought on that legislation from way back, which could hold up what he's trying to do. Um, I think there's another deeper question here, and that is this, that the world has changed. He may not realize it, but you look at what's happening in the US. Um, you know, the world of the future is the world of Elon Musk. It's the world, uh, you know, are investors going to simply say, oh yeah, let's go back to gas guzzly cars and let's redo the coal industry? I don't think so. So my hope is that the actual investment community in America that has seen a different kind of future will not want to roll it back and go back to some dirty past that they've left behind. And that's going to be the tougher thing for him to fight. Beyond the Elon Musk argument, there are two questions. Will green companies step up and lobby for green regulation the way dirty companies have? And how do we keep the rest of the companies honest? Here is where efforts like supply change and carbon tracker become more important. So it actually means the role of the financial markets and shareholders becomes even more important, I think, in, in this, you know, in this world that we now live in. So they need to understand the risk, they need to understand the emerging technologies, the impact they're having on the low carbon transition, and how that's going to play out um, with increased uncertainty, and probably understand from the businesses, require more disclosure on climate risk um, as we go forward, and play, I think, a more active, a more active role. So um, impact investing, one of the main uh, themes that is, is, doesn't matter if you're looking at the land use sector or energy procurement, etc., is traceability. And you see that echoes across the, the, the corporate world right now. Um, Consumer Goods Forum, the TFA 2020, again, these were not initiatives um, that were set up by Barack Obama or, or the White House. What they are is other deforestation pledges and pledges by companies to restructure their supply chains in ways that promote sustainable agriculture. Yes, they were they were facilitated greatly by, by the U.S., but but also by other very leading and important actors. And these largest sort of consumer-facing corporates who suddenly are interested in the composition of their supply chains, yes, they're they're interested in it for reputational reasons, and they have consumers in Europe and America who, who focus on the provenance of, of goods and the energy intensity of, of their production. But equally, it's a security of supply issue. And they know that they're licensed to operate in 
in key sourcing countries and with governments who do not stick their head in the sand about the realities associated with climate change and resource depletion will depend upon um, their their sort of corporate citizenship and, and their corporate risk management. You're, you're going you're gonna to have clearly two paths in the corporate world, right? The path that won't do anything until they're required to do it. And clearly they, they just got to get out of jail free pass at the federal level for the next four years, right? Then you've got the group that was doing it because they've or, they finally realized it's in the best interest of their business to do it. And that's most of the supply chain folks who legitimately acknowledge the that the consumer sentiment, if you want to say, and the market sentiment is you better be a good citizen regarding climate. So those, I think that activity will continue, I hope, and I think that activity will, will, um, will have to move beyond um, rhetoric and become much more transparent and, uh, and have much more integrity in reporting and, and, uh, uh, and then I think, but I, and I think that's important because ultimately, again, those companies them aren't doing it now. They're not moving because they think it looks like the right thing to do. They're moving because they think it is necessary for the future success of their business. And therefore, if they're reporting nonsense, they're hurting their business. And so I think that you take that logic through, they're going to want to fix that and they're going to want to have a system that they can rely on that says that the results they're reporting are true and accurate and represent things. In the case of deforestation, if you look at that, the zero deforestation pledges, firstly, some, you have to figure out what is the scope of that pledge? What does zero deforestation mean? Clearly, we're not going to wake up tomorrow and have Indonesia be a zero deforestation landscape. So what is the timeline on a zero deforestation pledge from somebody who's getting supply from Indonesia? And what's the allowed progress towards that timeline that will allow them to keep making that pledge without getting hammered by the world, uh, but be honest about it with the world? And so not set an unrealistic expectation that deforestation is going to be zero tomorrow. Um, so I think that that indication is already a, a, a huge leap from where we were three years ago, where, and I think that leap is driven again by their recognition finally that, that it's not just about image necessarily or reputational risk, although that's a big piece. It's now about stability of supply and integrity of supply, and are they going to actually be able to get what they need to be in business in the future? And so that means they want to be real about the performance. In addition to supply change and carbon tracker, Global Canopy launched a project called TRACE, that's T-R-A-S-E which lets you track soybeans from specific municipalities in Brazil through major brokers to ports of entry. We've got an entire episode in the works devoted just to that. And there are others, such as... The work that uh, Mark Carney, Governor of the Bank of England, is doing through the Financial Stability Task Force and the, its climate risk, you know, climate risk Task Force. That's actually the Bloomberg Task Force I mentioned earlier. Mark Carney is the one who recruited... Michael Bloomberg is is critical to come up with some really good um, criteria on disclosing climate risk. You know, particularly stress testing the business models of these companies um, against a low carbon scenario. That's not to say the magic of market forces will fix this mess without government support and leadership. Both government and private sector leadership are necessary. But and the fact of the matter is that institutional investors, you know, in particular pension funds, operate over a much longer term horizon than one sort of U.S. election cycle. Certainly when you realize that in two years God will be going through this again, at least in the midterms. But So they, they are, by definition, operating over much extended uh, time horizons. And one might say that when you have policy stability, certainly around the climate change, it gives... Um, 
um, you know, corporates and, and other sectors a compass. Well, as long as we're in uh, accordance with the law of the uh, of the day, then that's fine. Then we've managed our risk. Job done. A little bit like uh, compliance and, and AML, you know, stuff. When you remove um, the policy certainty, you kind of create this vacuum, and people are left with the the bold sort of real, re realization, the ice cold realization that actually we need to manage risk according to what we believe, you know, uh, as fiduciary is uh, good practice, best practice. Okay, and they're left to actually not fall back on on some published, you know statute, but they have to effectively, you know, communicate with their shareholders transparently and accurately. So that's why I said I don't want to sound panglossian about this, but I do think some good can arise. If, you know, we don't wake up one morning to a mushroom cloud, I think that we've got a huge opportunity to rebuild the body politic and also rebuild the global economy and local economies. Let's not forget, you know, we all operate in local economies, whether we're in, in, in Europe or America or Peru. The local economy is something that drives our, our most immediate actions. We've got an opportunity to to rebuild that now in an image that we are comfortable to pass down to the next generation. And that wraps up this edition of Bionic Planet. I do hope you enjoyed the show, and I especially hope you got something out of it. Feel free to offer feedback, either via text or audio. If you record a short MP3 and email it to me, I might play it on the air. My email address again, steve at bionic-planet.com. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick. Thanks for listening. 